We're going to jump right in uh, to 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapters 27 and 29. If you're going to use the the Pew Bible, uh, as I am, uh, that is page uh, 249, begins chapter 27, and then uh, 251 is chapter 29. that's what we'll be looking at today. And I kind of want to dive just right in because we've got a uh, lot to do. And I know everybody's got Father's Day plans, which is great. And I hope that, uh, I hope that you do. Um, so let's jump in here. Remember with me that uh, 27, 28, and 29 are kind of one large story arc. As large as you can get in three chapters. Um, it begins with, and, and we'll go back over it, but... But big picture is that David goes to the Philistines to serve them. He kind of begins to work with the Philistines, which eventually leads the Philistines to march to attack Israel. Then in chapter 28, which was last Sunday's sermon, if you didn't catch it, uh, jump on our website, odcc.org, and you can, you can hear it there. Um, and I think Jesse has uh, the slides, the flannel graph slides uh, on Facebook, if you want to check our Facebook page and see this. So Saul, in response to the attack of the Philistines, goes to get the advice from the witch of Endor, which then jumps back. And then in 29, we jump back and look at David as David is marching with the Philistines to, the, the, um, to Shunem, where, where Saul uh, and, and chapter 28 take place. So we're going to kind of take 27 and 29 in one big jump. And I want to suggest to you, kind of out of the gate, that what is happening in this, or what is common between David and between Saul, is two things, and they're related to one another. The first thing is fear. Saul is afraid. David is afraid. And the response that they give to this fear is compromise. They compromise. And it's a little bit at a time, just Just a tiny little compromise here. But as it begins to add up, as we will see, we get to big, massive sins. We saw it last week with Saul and the witch of Endor. We're going to see it this week with David and some of his activities. So let's look at our text. So diving in. Remember chapter 26. This is two sermons back. But in 26, Saul and David have an encounter. Remember Saul's the king and he's trying to kill David because he sees David as somebody who's usurping and going to take over, which is actually kind of true. Um, David isn't seeking to do that, but God's already said that he's going to do that. So Saul is trying to kill David. And in chapter 26, David has the opportunity to to kill Saul, but he rejects that. And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 1. David says in his heart, 27 verse 1, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me then that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. That I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Because the Philistines, if you remember, were kind of Viking warriors, mighty guys. And so because of their might, Saul's not going to travel down. and He's not going to get in there and mess with him and grab David and drag him out of Philistine territory. And so David does this. Now remember with me that David tried this before. When Saul first threatened David's life, he fled down to Gath. Then he fled across the Jordan River over to the area of Moab. And he lived in Moab for a period of time until God sent a prophet who said to David, what in the world are you doing in Moab? And David says, because it's safer here. It's more pleasant here. No one's trying to kill me here. Which generally, you know, if somebody's trying to kill you, you 
run away. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm sorry that you forgot that already, but this is just piece of information. If somebody's trying to kill you, run away, right? And so David says, well, why would I go back? To, I'm, I'm safe here in Moab. And God says, no, I'm calling you to the dangerous place. I'm calling you to the difficult place. I'm calling you to the trial and the tribulation because in that trial and tribulation, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. And so the prophet speaks to David and David listens. He hears and he obeys and he goes back to Israel. And this is kind of why we find David in Israel. And so God has called him specifically God has used him throughout this sermon series. We've heard again and again how Israel was in danger. And because Saul is kind of a sketchy king, he's not very good at what he is supposed to be doing. And so God uses David as a stopgap measure. It would have been a tragedy if David had stayed in Moab, hadn't listened to God's word, because people would have died. Things bad would have happened. The people would have suffered. But David is now experiencing the personal Uh, pressure here. He's experiencing the pain. He's experiencing the separation. He's experiencing the fear. And the fear leads him to make a bad decision. David, in the midst of his fear, has forgotten how many times God has rescued him in the past. And David, in his fear, is not Seeing, he's blind to how God is using him in his present situation because David is focused on David. And I think that we see in this then something that at least echoes in my life. Maybe maybe you all are holier than me and, and this doesn't speak to you, but this is what I thought. I thought of how this is in my own life. That when I am struggling, when I am suffering, when there's a time of temptation, when there's a trial, when there's a difficulty, when there's pain, when whatever is happening is happening, I forget frequently God's saving power in the past. How he has rescued me, how he has been with me, how he has brought people alongside me. And I often say God is, and this is my my experience, God is the God of last minute rescues. Like we would always rather God just solves the problem immediately. But God doesn't do that very often. Generally, God waits till like the last second. He's pressing my faith to grow. And in those moments of pressure, fear begins to grow in me and I forget what God has done. Also, as that pressure is around me and as that fear is built into me, I often lose sight of how God is using this pressure, this situation, this pain, this this struggle, this temptation, whatever it is, how God is using it to bear witness to his glory in my life right here and right now. Because I'm so focused on what? The future. I'm so focused on God saving then God is rescuing then. I, I want the problem solved then. And so I'm so busy focused on the future that I can't see the past and I can't see the present. And because of that, I frequently make compromises. I frequently make mistakes. I frequently do stupid things. And David is doing the same thing here. This fear mixed with desire for safety, for security, for comfort, for wellness leads David to go to the Philistines who are the arch nemesis of Israel. They are God's enemies. And David goes and he sides with them. Now, uh, remember, here's a map of our, here's a kind of rough map of our world. Uh, We're over here. Israel is over here. We zoom in. This is the kingdom of Saul. This is the the territory that he's basically cut up. This is the area we talked about last week. This is where the Philistines are going to kind of march and they're going to end up up here. Um, But we're talking about this region down here. And David is going to flee into Philistia. Those 
guys uh, don't do a lot of um, building. They don't do a lot of harvesting. They do a lot of raiding. So again, think Vikings, right? And so here's a, here's a map of Philistia proper. So he comes into this area over here, and he comes to Gath. Now, you might remember Gath. Gath is the area where, where uh, Goliath was from. So this is a, a great sort of warrior area. And, and remember, uh, David is the Chuck Norris of the ancient world. Like, he's, nobody messes with him. He is the baddest of the bad dudes. That's who, that's who David is. And so as he goes to Gath, and remember uh, with me that, that this, is, this whole region doesn't have one king as Israel has one king. It has several, has seven different chieftains. And so this region kind of ruled by Gath, this area right here. Uh, and he goes with his 600 men and his two wives. And of course, those men probably had wives. And there was probably servants with them. And there was probably flocks with them. So this is actually a pretty large group. They all go to Gath, to Achish, who's the son of the king of Gath. And you can imagine Gath at first them being like, well, I don't know if we want this guy who's our enemy in our midst. But imagine the, um, the propaganda that you can put out. Israel's mightiest warrior is now on our side. Israel's mightiest warrior now bends his knee to the king of Gath. Israel's mightiest warrior, I put it like this, this is like a five-star general defecting from the American army and going to serve the Russian army or ISIS or something like that. Like, I mean, this is scandalous. This is scandalous stuff. And of course, the king of Gath is like, yeah, this is awesome. And so David goes in there and, he, and he's living there. And eventually David says to the king of Gath, listen, I've got a lot of people. You don't have much space. Why don't you give me, because I'm showing, I've already shown you my faithfulness. Why don't you give me a region and I'll, I'll rule over that region as your vassal, as your servant. And so he sends him down to Ziklag, which is a great name, Ziklag. I like saying that. Say that, Ziklag. Ziklag. Isn't that, that sounds like a good, you might need to have more kids. Um, okay, so, and you can see here how this is a wise choice. So just putting it into context, if you're new to the Bible and you're kind of, these names are weird and these, t- it's okay, it's okay. But I kind of, remember that Judah, this area right here is David's house. Remember that? Okay, and where has, where has the king of Philistia put him? Right here, right across the border. It's a very strategic move because what is the job of a good king in Philistia? You don't plant crops, you don't build cities, you raid, right? Viking warriors. And so, and so his job, as Dave, David's job, is to go into to raid. And gave, David goes. He goes and he raids all kinds of cities. He comes back with flocks and clothes and gold. And the king of Achish says, man, where did you go to get all of this stuff? And he says in verse 10, David would say, well, I went to the Negeb of Judah or against the Negeb of the Jamelites or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And again, weird names. The word Negeb or Negev, depending on your translation, whatever you're looking at, is a word that just means south. So the southern region of Judah, the southern region of the Jamelites, and the southern region of the Kenites, which is down here a little bit further, right? And these are all allies of Israel. So David is saying to the king, I'm doing exactly what you put me here to do. I'm raiding your enemies. I'm plundering them and I'm taking it and giving it to you. And so Achish is like, right? 
I mean, he's pleased. This guy is, this, this is, this was a good investment. I'm glad we gave him this area. Except for we read in verse 11 that this is actually not what David was doing. David wasn't actually killing his brothers and his sisters. He was actually going further south. I should have put a different map here, but so we'll just get, imagine there's more map over here. Can you do that with me? All right, so David is actually going south down here to Shur, and he's going all the way across what's called the Baptistry Egypt, because he would come up out of the water and get out, right? So let's call this Egypt. So he's coming down all the way down here to the edge of Egypt, and he's going and he's raiding this entire region. So he's going the opposite direction of what he tells the king of Achish. And what is he doing as he goes there? He is going into these cities, and he is killing every man, every woman, and every child. Because if he doesn't, somebody might escape and make their way back to Philistia and the king of Gath will hear that he's been lying about what he's been doing. I have a problem with this, right? I have a problem with this because while, while this makes some kind of like psychopathic sense, like, okay, yeah, that, that takes care of the problem. It certainly is an interesting ethic to try to defend, David is now lying to the king of Gath in a place he shouldn't be, lying to the king that is not his king and he shouldn't be dealing with, about these massacres which he is now doing along the border here. Interesting. Interesting. I want to talk for a second, this is just going to be a sidestep out of our theme, which is kind of how fear and compromise work together, because I think the story is a good place to do take a teaching opportunity, take a moment. And that teaching opportunity is this. How to not read a Bible story. I am pretty convinced that as you run into people who are kind of like turn their nose up at the Bible or don't believe the Bible or have issues with the Bible, about 90% of it has to do with people who don't know how to read the Bible right. This is every Facebook post you'll ever see, right? This is every tweet you'll ever see. Because it is hard to take context in 120 characters, right? I mean, that's just, that's a difficult thing. But this is largely the theology that I see not just from non-Christians, but from Christians too. How do we not read this Bible story? Now, you notice the first problem I have with this Bible story is not the massacre that David is about. It's actually, well, it's actually the lies that David is telling. But the second thing that's very interesting is how many wives does David have? Dose. Dose. And it is this kind of thing that we see throughout the Bible, which leads to memes like this, which we see, uh, I've seen, I don't know, maybe 20 times, this, this same meme here, which is talking about biblical marriage. This is, this is an argument. Uh, it's an argument in a meme. And it's pointing out all of the ways, and some of these are actually quite accurate, some of them not so much, but, but generally this is an accurate meme in describing something we see. For instance, we see this going on with David. And eventually, spoiler alert, he will take concubines when he becomes king, which is little more than sexual slavery. This is what David, the man after God's own heart, the man who foreshadows the coming of Jesus, this is some of the things that he is up to. And so what does this meme then argue? This meme is then arguing and saying that, that look at all of the different things that we see going on in the Bible. It clearly then does not give us an actual ethic for how men and women are to interact in terms of marriage. There is no such thing then, they will argue, as biblical marriage. Here it is, proved in black and white. So what do we do with this? 
we stop reading the Bible like people who make memes. We stop reading the Bible like children. And we read it like adults who recognize that there is a difference between a story and a command. Right? You with me? So we can tell a story as we do right here with David. It says, how many wives did David have? Two. And it doesn't say, David had two wives. Everyone should have two wives. That's a really cool thing. Good job. And it doesn't say, that would be terrible. (laughs) Uh, Don't get in trouble. Don't get in trouble. Uh, um, Nor does it say, David has two wives, and it is an awful, sinful thing, and he is going to be judged for it. Does it? It simply tells us what happens. It is a record of what transpired. And you and I are left with the interpretive power to ask the question, is this good? Is this bad? Is this neutral? What do we do with this story? And so this is where then we have to use our own imaginations, we use our own experiences, we use our own scripture, and we we come to conclusions. And so we can take various paths, and you see this happen all the time. Will I determine what to do with David and his two wives? Will I determine that based on the context of tradition in the past and what David did? Do I take it in the context of the way I should live my life right now and my own determinations? Do I do it based on my own feelings? Do I do it based on the ideas of those around me? Do I do it based on where I think society should progress to what should I do and this is of course especially important in the LGBTIQ and various other issues that we're dealing with today and I'm seeing all kinds of bad Bible reading and my request to you is that you be a people who read the Bible well because that is simply nonsense that meme is nonsense That kind of argumentation is nonsense. We have principled, written stories which are clear, concise, and declared by God. You go back to Genesis. Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And I like this line. I never really thought about it before. But, and he blessed them. In what way does that mean to bless somebody? What does it mean to bless somebody? We don't use that language much, and when we do, it's kind of weirdly charismatic and meaningless. Bless them. The blessing follows. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The blessing is that God has created life. God created life. And he blesses this couple, and he says, be like me and create life. We are made in the image. Every man, woman, child that you see is made in the image of God. There is something in each and every one of us that reflects the direct characteristic of who God is. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing blessing. Nothing in all of creation has such a privileged and responsible place in God's creation as you and I do. And God has laid this in the creation of the world. And when Jesus gets asked the question, what about marriage? He goes back to this. And he says, this is how God made it. And when they rebut, because the Pharisees are around him, and they, like good first century men, say, well, now hold on a second. Moses said we could divorce our wives if we get tired of them. Are you saying we can't do that? And Jesus says, listen, Moses put up with your shenanigans because your hearts were hard to God's word. 
And rather than destroy you and wipe you off the face of the earth and start over, God in his great mercy was allowing you to live despite your sin. It was not like this from the beginning. Here Jesus then calls back to mind the command, the declaration, the principle that God gave. Jesus says this, have you not read that he created from the beginning male and female and said therefore they leave their father and mother, hold fast to their wife, the two become one flesh and once that oneness has happened, there is no longer two. God does not see Jordan and Laura as separate, completely autonomous individuals. He sees us together. He sees us together. Similarly, we have people who might say something like, look at, uh, look at David out there killing people and massacring people and maiming people, and he's, he's doing all of these. Look at how violent the Bible is. Look at how, look at how, uh, how violent God is. And I, you want to stop them and say, listen, where did God tell David to do any of this? No, thank you. You guys should have all been on that one. I've already given you the answer for that. That's a freebie. Nowhere. God has not told David to do any of this. In fact, this is, in a sense, a rebellion from, from David on the part of what God called him to do way back three other chapters before when God said, get out of Moab. Your position, your place is there in Israel. You need to live there. And David said, you know what? I can't take it. I'm too afraid. I'm too hurt. I'm too, I'm too paranoid. I'm, I'm suffering too much. I can't do what you want me to do anymore, God. So he compromises just a little bit, then just a little bit, and just a little bit until now he is committing murder. And this is not God's calling on his life. But what folks can do is take this passage and say, look at the Bible. This is what I'm trying to explain to you. We have to understand how to read scripture and how not to read scripture. And how we don't read scripture is we do not look at this narrative story and say, well, God rubber stamps all of it because David did it or because it's in the Bible. No, there's plenty going on here that God does not rubber stamp in any way, shape, or form. Make sense? In Genesis 9, God says, or this and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from the man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. So there, there, there's the principle that laid down. And then there's got this little nice little poem. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man and woman, right? This is generic. Man and woman in his own image. Interestingly, he follows that up with what we were just talking about. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly in the earth. We have then a condemnation of what David is doing. If we take scripture, we take the principles and the doctrine of scripture, and we use it to read the stories of the life of the people in the Bible. As we continue through this series, especially as we get into the book of First and Second Kings, we are going to see lots of negative examples don't be like David in this situation. We're given this story so that we can see what compromise looks like so we can steer clear of it. So we can see how not to live our lives. The Bible gives us plenty of that. All right, so let's get back into the story. So again, um, I think I got a map here. I do, good. 
So the Philistines, uh, David is living with them for a year and four months. This is kind of an oddly specific number, but we're giving it. David lives there for some time. He's doing all that raiding. He's bringing back all this plunder. So, so Achish is very pleased with David. Says that David must be a stench in Judah's nostril. I mean, like, there's no way they'll ever accept David back. He is mine for life because he's been busy killing all these people, even though that's not exactly what was happening. And the Philistine kings all get it in their head that they're going to march north um, and here's the north area. So they're coming up from down here, which is where we were looking at, and they're going north to this area here. They're going to march from there to there. So they gather together, and they move up toward Aphek, which is kind of up here. And David is marching with them, which is interesting. David is with them. And as they begin to march together, David's got his you know, 600 or so men, and they're going, and eventually some of the Philistines say, why are these Hebrews with us? Like, isn't this the guy that they used to sing that song, David, or Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands? And listen, wasn't that thousand and ten thousand, wasn't that like us? Like, was it talking about him killing us? Why, why is he in our midst? And the king of Achish defends him. He says, listen, this guy's been great. He's, 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 a, he's not ever going home again, and he's a mighty warrior. We can use him in our battles. But the Philistines won't hear anything of it, and they say, get rid of this guy. He's not trustworthy. So Achish goes to David, and he says, listen, bro, I'd love to have you with us. I really would, but nobody else trusts you, and so you can just go ahead and go home. You would think at this moment that David would say, oh, man, dodged I just didn't really want to go and do this. I didn't really want to go and kill God's people and attack God's people. But instead, what does David do? David argues with Achish and says, what did I do wrong? Why are you sending me away? Why am I, why am I, did I offend you in some way? What did I do? I've been loyal to you. And Achish says, no. He says, interestingly, he says, you have been like an angel of God, a messenger from God. That's how great you have been to me. But still, nevertheless, we don't trust you. Go home. And I'm left with so many questions about David. What was he going to do? Was he going to march with the Philistines? Was he going to really march to shoot him? And, and, and remember, Saul's camped here at Mount Gilboa. Were they gonna go, was he going to kill his own? Was he going to kill God's people? Was he going to pull some kind of sneaky double cross? And you know, Was he just defending himself because his pride was hurt, you know? Men have a little bit of pride sometimes about their work. And, and perhaps David was just offended that, that, that uh, Achish didn't want him with it. Are you saying I'm not good enough? I'm not a good enough warrior for your army? Come on. Well, we don't know. We can't psychoanalyze David. But there's some, something off about this whole situation. Something off about this whole situation. And I here see again the same word that we've kind of been going over and over. Fear has led David into Philistia, fear of Saul. Then in Philistia, fear of the Philistines led him to kill and massacre a bunch of people and led him to lie about it. Fear has brought him to the place where now he is kind of a, a fixture within the army of the king of Gath. And he is now marching to kill, to fight with his own brothers and uh, with his own brothers here in Israel. Fear has led to compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise to the place where David is in danger. We don't know what he would have done had he got there, but he's in danger, nonetheless, of transgressing with such greatness that God might have pulled the kingdom from him too, as he did with Saul. This is a very serious 
situation. And I want to remind you of where this is coming from. Where is this coming from? In our lives, when fear takes over and we begin to follow it, we begin to let that thing grab a hold of us, we let it to rule us, if it let it to direct our actions. Fear keeps us quiet, fear keeps us silent, fear pushes us down the wrong moral path where we say, I don't care what the Bible says, or you know, I'll find a way around it just because the Bible says it doesn't. Fear leads to all kinds of compromises. And what it does when we're afraid in that moment is we forget, we forget how God has rescued us time and time and time again. We're blind to that, we forget it. How often the Israels, like after God parts the Red Sea and they walk through it and they're wandering in the wilderness, like a couple of days later, they're like, where's the water, right? And you're like, dude, I just, I, just, I just destroyed Egypt with 10 plagues. I just brought you through the Red Sea. Like, why are you whining? Just ask me and I'll give it to you. But instead, oh God, you bring us out here to die. Where's the bread? Where's the water? They're like whiny children, aren't they? Emery does this every Sunday. When can we go home? I'm dying. Wasting away to nothing. You can see my ribs. Right? This is what Israel's doing. They have forgotten that like 10 days before, God rescued them with such mighty power that we're talking about it. Like 4,000 years later, we're still talking about it. And they forgot it because fear took hold of them. Further, as we're stuck in that moment, as that fear of the future, fear of the cancer, fear of the lost job, fear of the family that might fall apart, fear of all of these different things come bubbling up. Not only do we forget God's provision in the past, but we forget that God often, frequently, most often, uses us in moments of great difficulty. And that perhaps, probably, God is putting you in this moment so that you can learn to trust him more and so that others can see his glory shining out of you. How often this morning did we reference, sing, praise God for the cross, the object of execution, the object of suffering is the place that Christians can focus our eyes and say, look at the power of God in the moment of greatest trial." Whatever you are suffering, whatever you are going through, whatever fear there is in your life, do not let it blind you to what God has done and what God is doing so that you do not make these terrible compromises in your life that will lead you down the wrong path, will possibly destroy everything, and certainly lead others along that path with you. Do not give in. This is a good day for Father's Day. It's a good Father's Day. Conviction. I am longing to see, not to say that you aren't, but I am longing to see in ever-increasing numbers men of conviction. Men who will stand up and say, I don't care what my boss says. I don't care what the people around me say. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what my children say. I care what God says. Here I will stand. I will not give an inch. Men of conviction, and we have so many of you in this room today, and I look at you with eyes of admiration. I want to be able to point to you I want to be able to say, that's a man you should spend time with, Austin. 
That's a man you should spend time with, Zach. That's a man you should spend time with, Connor, because these are men of conviction who will lead you and show you what it looks like to follow a living God. And that's frequently what I think we forget. We forget that we are worshiping a living God. There is no idol here, right? There is no image here. Why? Because God is a living God who is present with us even now. And to offend him is a grave mistake. Which is why compromise is such a dangerous thing. Even the smallest compromise is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so we need that strength. We need that power. We need to refuse and resist the fear that is so easy to bubble up, take hold of us, and sweep us away. As we come to conclusion this morning, there's this great little passage in Numbers chapter 15. In Numbers chapter 15, I've probably talked about it before, but I really love it. Um, it's, it's this bizarre passage about tassels on their garments. You need to put a little tassels, little tassels on your garments, on your shirts probably, which seems like a bizarre thing to do. Like of all the things God has to command his people about, tassels, really? It's a fascinating little line. And then it says, and then it says what you need to do is you need to take on that tassel and you need to tie a blue cord to that tassel. Tie a blue cord to that tassel. So not only do you have the tassel, but you've got the, the blue cord. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them and not to follow after your own heart, such an applicable thing today, and your own eyes, which you are so, so frequent to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and you shall be holy to your God. For I am the Lord your God who brought you past out of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God here in this land. So my uh, encouragement, my question for you today is this. What will your blue tassel be? We all have fears, we all have problems, we all have issues, we all have temptation to compromise. What will your blue tassel be? Will it be a Bible on your desk so that you see it frequently? Will it be a notification on your phone to maybe... Uh, pray several times a day. Set up that notification so the note pops up on your phone. Will it be a, a, a verse, maybe sticky notes of verse around the house? What will, your, what will you put before your eyes so that this week you do not fear? And when the fear comes up, you can see before your eyes and you can say, God saved me, God is saving me, and God will save me. What will your blue tassel be? Let's stand and sing praises to our God as we come to a conclusion this morning. Thank you.